You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who begs from you. And do not refuse him who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. I mean, come on, right? Come on. Like, come on. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, I like the Bible a lot. I like to take it pretty seriously. Sometimes, you know, it's like, and I got to get up and tell you to do it too. I just, come on, really. Okay, and. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Starts out, yep, we all know that, right? It's in the Old Testament. It's in Hammurabi's code. It's probably the oldest justice code there is. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I mean, you know, it's, it's all this truth. It's the one you come up with, too, when you're a kid, even, right? Your brother runs over your Star Wars X-Wing fighter with his big wheel and smashes it beyond repair. So you stomp on his Rubik's Cube wearing your snow boots with no regard to the fact that he's completed five sides, breaking it into all 54 colored plastic pieces, sending them skittering across the kitchen floor. Justice. Your brother, while he might stand there looking astonished at Justice's speed and might, he can't say anything. He understands it. Fair is fair, right? This is a form of justice that leads to everybody being super pissed off. And kind of sad. And maybe they wouldn't admit it, but maybe even feeling a little bit guilty. This also is the system that is used to justify capital punishment in our country. You commit a horrible crime, you kill somebody, the state commits a horrible crime, kills you. And, you know, you will tell the television reporter when they ask that you know that this won't bring back your Star Wars X-Wing fighter, but at least now there's closure and you can begin to heal. But Jesus doesn't stop there, right? That's what this whole 
crazy thing about this Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at for I don't know how many weeks. Um, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, Jesus goes on and he amends this system, this ethical system that balances violence with violence. And it goes on and says, I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn also, so they can strike the other cheek as well. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go a second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Is this even wise? Do not resist an evildoer? What? So somebody hurts you, don't defend yourself. Remain in a position so that they might hurt you again. Somebody wants to sue you and take your coat, you give them your cloak as well, which basically means you give them all your clothes. You give them everything. You're naked. Completely exposed. Somebody wants to force you down the road one mile, you go a second mile. So what do you have here? Somebody's beat up, they beat you up, strips you naked, now is dragging you down the road, and you're to volunteer, why don't we go a little bit further? And at the end, there's a beggar asking, begging from you, asking something for you. What do you have left? What are you going to give them? You don't have any, you don't have pockets. So Jesus amends this Old Testament code that Jesus is replacing the code, this code that leaves both parties hurt with one that just leaves you hurt. Replacing this code that leaves both parties hurt with one that just leaves you hurt. I mean, I'm looking for something better in here. And um, Debbie said last week about the Sermon on the Mount that if you're not poor in spirit at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you certainly will be by the end of it. Very true. This year, in this church year, we hear, we get to preach through the entire Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters of it, five through seven. As I said it before, if you don't get a chance to reread it, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, certainly a lot of interesting stuff in there. And a lot, this is the largest section in the Sermon on the Mount, the largest section of teaching, of Jesus' teaching, in uh, anywhere in the Gospels, in any Gospels. You know, this is, they often if you've heard of these red-letter Bibles where they print all the words that Jesus says in red, this is just red all over it, this section. Red everywhere. These three chapters. And like, as I've said previously in previous sermons, that these three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, they do contain some of the most profound and compelling, but frightening and encouraging and threatening, but also simply ethically and theologically gorgeous teachings in all of the New Testament. But they had the potential to be quite disheartening, this sermon of Jesus's. I mean, the list of potential failings for you as an individual are extensive. 
And the punishment for those failings are not only severe, but grotesque. Clearly, the red-letter Christians have misunderstood the intent of using that color in printing the words of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I realize reading it this time through that it is blood in the words spilled on the page. It's my righteousness hemorrhaging all over the page. I bleed from the eyes and the hands and the feet, and certainly my tongue has caused me to sin. My mind and my heart are guilty too. The fires crackle all around me. I stand naked, in need, and bleeding. So what do we got here in this Sermon on the Mount? What kind of code is this, or set of rules. Is this sermon, or what is Jesus putting out here? These principles, his philosophy? What is this? Is this what, like, ethics or morals? Like, what is the difference between ethics and morals, really? I mean, I always wonder, but I'm sort of hesitant to, like, ask out loud, because it seems like a smart person should know the difference between ethics and morals. Like, I probably should have learned it in freshman year, in Intro to Philosophy with Don Postema. You know, or probably either I should have, either earlier than that, I should have probably learned it in high school in my advanced smarty kids class. You know, actually, I was probably taught the difference between ethics and morals in grade school in my young evangelical tyrants club. But I just can't remember. But as I looked into it, I realized that I'm not the only one for whom this is a little unclear. And of course, when I say that I looked into it, I mean that I googled what is the difference between morals and ethics. And, but you don't know, I mean, come on, don't judge me. I'm not just some random Googler that accepts any answer I find on the Internet. I didn't just read Yahoo Answers. No. I mean, even though Loving Him 65 seemed to understand my dilemma in their response to Scorpio Awesome, writing, um, yeah. That is a hard one. Um, I, think I think nothing. There's no difference. I think they're the same thing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Hope that helps. <laughs> no, I went to more substantial sites than that. There was an article on the website for the Bellingham Exotic Pet Rescue that said, Morals define a person's character. Ethics are standards or codes of behavior ex expected by groups to which an individ individual belongs, such as national society or uh, religious or professional company. These are ethics. A person's moral code is unchanging. They assume a lot there at the exotic peck rescue. Um, a person's moral code is unchanging, but the ethics depend on the context. And usaggression.org says that the two nouns are closely related and often interchangeable. The main difference is that morals are abstract, subjective, and can change depending on the context, while ethics are rooted in unchanging principles of fairness. <laughs> morals embody principles used to decide what behaviors are right, good, and proper. Ethics are about putting 
these principles into action. Ethics are about self-restraint. What we should not be doing, even though we could, or have the power to, or the right to, or want to, or it would feel good. Ethics are the rules for deciding correct conduct. Now, the Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy says that the word ethics is commonly used interchangeably with morality. Well, I guess big ups to loving him 65. <laughs> of course, ethics is a branch of philosophy. Morals, I don't know, let's just, I don't know what those are. But ethics is a branch of philosophy, philosophical study, and the history of ethics and philosophy is long, deep, and wide. You don't want to go down there. I mean, there's, it's, it's quite interesting, quite compelling, but it's just everybody has written on it, and there's all kinds of, well, ethics is the study of the systemizing in philosophy. Ethics is the study of the systemizing of and defining concepts of right and wrong based on particular... Uh, things. I had the answer here. Determinants. I don't know if it was worth the wait. Um, so it begins with the Greeks. Um, if it looks like I have like seven different pages that aren't in any particular order, it's because it's true. Um, so it begins with the Greeks, this history of ethics. And because clearly before the Greeks, people never thought about what was right and wrong and just like did stuff and were surprised at the outcome. Um, which actually sounds a little bit less stressful to me. So Socrates says that right and wrong is all determined by virtue. And Aristotle says what's determinant of what is right and wrong is what's more true to your, the most true to oneself. Hedonists, of course, say that they are determined by what brings you the most pleasure. And it goes on and on through every philosophical epoch, epoch. Now, of course, the post-structuralists, you get all the way here, and they say, well, there is no self available to determine right and wrong. So, what kind of ethics do we have today in this text? What kind of ethics is this that Jesus is giving us? Is it okay we recognize that there are right behaviors and wrong behaviors that Jesus is talking about, and he is really like going extreme with them? And what is the determinant of what makes right or wrong in this? What kind of ethics are these? A lot of people say, well, you know, clearly the ethics in the Gospels and in the Sermon on the Mount is the ethics of love. That your love for the other, and that is what, um, that's what determines the ways in which you should behave. Um, that is fantastic, but if you're unable, which most of us are, to follow those, it's an ethics really of stumbling and hopelessness and fear, because you might desire to act out of love, but that doesn't always happen. And when it comes to not hating people in your heart, you pretty much are going to miss that one every time. I mean, of course, though, I mean, maybe all this, I don't need to be so melodramatic about what's in this thing to Jesus' day. Um, 
I mean, it's possible that Jesus might be exaggerating about all this, you know? I think Debbie mentioned that last week. And I think gospel writers, that writers, they exaggerate quite often. They use the technique. And so for me to agonize over my own personal ability or inability to measure up or my dread about the consequences of my failing really is a little bit self-absorbed, you know? Is this all about my, what, how could Jesus ask me to do this? It's hard. It's mean, I don't know. I mean, that kind of gospel mirror gazing nearly always results in missing the point, I think, of a text. Perhaps it's even employed subconsciously to avoid the point of a text. Verses 43 through 47 here contain the most radical redefinition of ethical law in the New Testament. The idea of loving your enemies and praying for them, meditating on those who seek to do you harm, and wanting for them life and love and happiness, the same as you would want for your children and your tribe, like that's enough teaching for a lifetime right there. That is intense. That is amazing. And if the consequences for failure that Jesus tells that Jesus tells us about are indeed hyperbole, then we don't need to be so afraid of failing. We can just devote ourselves to to trying to live out this life and live out these ethics in this way, not out of fear of consequences, but out of a desire to live in a world that will the, the kind of world that would result from this practice. But it's beautiful. But there's something a little bit, um, for me to love my enemies, that's great, and pray for them, and those people who persecute me or try to harm me, because I don't get that persecuted that much, people don't try to harm me that much, really, and my enemies are mostly people who, like, you know, honk really loud when I go into their lane. And um, while I do recite a prayer when that happens, um, <laughs> no, so I'm just like, I mean, I make it all these jokes, but what if you're a true, like someone who, uh, to ask a true victim not to defend themselves, to ask somebody who is a vulnerable person who is truly victimized to remain in that place. I can see that forgiveness and prayer could be helpful in healing, but turning the other cheek is not advice that you want to be giving them, I don't think. It's a crazy thing to ask somebody to do, to ask a victim to make that kind of a move. So. This week's reading ends with Jesus' call for perfection, right? It says, be perfect, therefore be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. Now, in a cursory reading, or the gospel mirror-gazing reading, this call to perfection can seem like one more unattainable demand, a demand that practically is victimizing us. One more point where we can fail. 
But if we read it not with blood in our own eyes, but trust in our hearts, maybe we can see something else here. Maybe we can see a different kind of an ethic here. An ethic like, like we've never seen before. An ethic that goes beyond our comprehension. Is it possible that everything that comes before this, before verse um, 48, where Jesus calls for us to be perfect, maybe everything that comes before this is Jesus' definition of perfection. A radical perfection. A relational perfection. When Jesus calls us to live out this heightened law, where we don't return violence with violence, where we don't objectify women, where we move to be reconciled with our neighbors and be willing to give up all we have, is it possible that Jesus is articulating the lengths at which he will go to be in relationship with us? That we are the victimizers. We are the ones committing violence against him. He's the one that turns another cheek. We are the ones that don't just want his cloak or the cloak of the week. We want to get everything we can possibly take. We're willing to take everything and leave him standing naked. We are the enemies that seek to do harm to the vulnerable. We are the ones that seek to persecute him. Jesus, when he prays for those who persecute him, prays for us. This is an ethic that we cannot practice. This is an ethic that is practiced on us.